welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm certainly joined by one of the most interesting people in politics, Democratic media consultant Neil Oxman. Beyond his day job electing candidates and his work in races from presidential to electing governors, senators, big city mayors, Neil is a virtual historian on the rise of television advertising and politics, is a rabid film watcher who sees more than 100 movies a year, and in his spare time, he caddies on the PGA Tour for Tom Watson, one of the most successful golfers of all time. I think you'll enjoy this fun and wide-ranging conversation with Neil Oxman. And before this discussion, I wanted to say a word about a sponsor of this podcast, politicalwire.com. Political Wire has been my go-to website for political news for years, even as I use sites like Twitter to aggregate a lot of my political news. I find myself specifically making a point to go to Political Wire on a daily basis. And there's a special deal for listeners of the Pro Politics podcast to get 10% off an annual membership to Political Wire. You'll get exclusive analysis, a trending news page updated around the clock with no ads. Plus, you'll receive two bonus newsletters. You'll have access to the terrific Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez and Ballot Access News. Just go to politicalwire.com, use the coupon code PROPOLITICS at checkout, or go directly to politicalwire.com slash propolitics to start your subscription. Thanks to Political Wire for sponsoring the ProPolitics podcast. And now, my conversation with Neil Oxman. Neil Oxman, tell me how you grew up. I grew up in the city of Philadelphia in a neighborhood in Southwest Philly. I went to public school. I went to Villanova for college. I then went to law school. Through the, my entire career in law school, I was either working on campaigns or most famously, catting on the professional golf tour. I literally never went to a single class my last two years of law school, not a class. And at my law school graduation, where I wasn't, I was caddying at the Danny Thomas Memphis Golf Classic for a pro from Houston, Texas named Homero Blancas. And I used to see the dean of my law school every year. He say the same thing to me. Oxman, you barely know enough about the law to talk about it at cocktail parties. <laughs> but I always wanted to be involved in politics. And back then, People said, oh, if you want to get involved in politics, you have to go to law school. And that's the only reason I went to law school. It's not because I ever wanted to practice law, because I wanted to be involved in politics. Well, did you grow up in a political family? And no, was, no, What got no, you interested no. in that? I mean, my parents were Roosevelt Democrats, as everybody my generation's parents were from big cities. When I was a kid, I stuffed envelopes for Bobby Kennedy in his campaign. I ran for student body president and got elected student body president in Villanova as an anti-war candidate against a couple of fraternity guys who were sort of not quite anti-war. This is the Vietnam War. But no, my family wasn't particularly political, although interested in it, but not political. I just was interested in it. And it's something I always wanted to do. Being a kid volunteering for Bobby Kennedy. When I was in law school, I had a friend of a friend who ran for state rep in Pittsburgh. I helped his campaign out. My first paying job, I've only ever, I actually, other than being as a kid, shoveling snow and doing stuff like that, I've actually only ever earned a living doing two things, caddying on the golf tour, and in political campaigns. And in the summer of 1976, 
I started working for a congressman on the North Shore of Massachusetts named Michael Harrington, not the Michael Harrington who wrote the book about poverty in America called The Other America, who everybody thought we were, but a congressman who got elected against Leverett Saltonstall in 1969 as an anti-war candidate in Massachusetts. And I was his field director and ran the biggest city in his district, Lynn, Massachusetts. He was going to run for the United States Senate against Ed Brooke. So I worked on that campaign, getting ready to work on his Senate campaign in 78. He decided not to run. It's when Paul Songus won the primary and then beat Brooke. What I did was I worked in Pennsylvania for Bob Casey for governor, the father of the current senator, worked for him, worked for Bill Green, who got elected mayor of Philadelphia. And I sort of made this choice at the end of 79, which was I could have continued to work on individual campaigns, go work in the Green administration, or start my own business. And I started this business with Doc Schweitzer in January of 1980, doing media and putting out our own shingle. As I say, we were sort of the third generation of people doing this. The first generation, and I don't mean people doing sort of operative stuff, but the first generation was David Garth, who used TV in a local race for his college roommate in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, other than presidential stuff. How should we think of this in terms of the year or the decade? First generation and stuff was Garth in the 60s. There were people who did TV ads for presidential campaigns. There's evidently a lost ad for Truman in 48 that no one can find. An ad agency guy named Rossa Reeves did ads for Eisenhower in, in 52. And then there were tons of presidential campaign ads that you can see. Garth was one of the first guys who did them in local campaigns, and he did it in 65. So he was kind of what I call the first generation of, quote, political consultants, the way we think of modern political consultants. I mean, there are always political operatives who worked in field through organization before modern campaigns, which is the way people got elected office. Your county, your state, your local, your city organization was what propelled you to office, whether it was Democrat or Republican, whether it was a city or a rural area. I think the second generation of guys who did this were famously David Sawyer and Bob Squire, Bob Goodman, who did it. And then I was part of the third generation, which was David Dokenbaum, Shrub, Doc Schweitzer, and myself. And it started to proliferate, although it was still a fairly small group of people who did political ads when we started in the early 80s. I mean, today, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of campaign consultants on both sides who do TV ad making or radio ad making. Interestingly, political consultants back then tended to do everything. We did literature. We did fundraising media, you tended to do everything. And starting in the 80s, campaign business started to become balkanized. You had direct mail consultants, you had fundraising consultants start, you had TV and radio people like us do it, you had field people do it. So instead of your shop doing everything, and some shops still do, but instead of your shop doing everything, there became specializations of political consultants. And that really started happening more in the 80s. But when we started, there might have been eight or 10 Democratic firms doing what we were doing. You are you know, something of a historian on this front. I know you do lectures and speak to college courses about the history of political advertising. Beyond the presidential campaigns, are there governor's campaigns or Senate campaigns or congressional campaigns or prototypes of what television can do for a candidate that all of a sudden people started trying to replicate? 
I mean, I think David Garth invented it, which was famously John Lindsay running for re-election of mayor in 1969. Lindsay was down in the polls. And there's a very famous spot where he talks to the camera for 60 seconds, which I show as one of the 10 greatest political ads of all time. And of course, you had the nuclear bomb girl with the, the Daisy ad, famously Daisy ad in 64 for Johnson, which actually only aired once, done by Tony Schwartz, who I knew and who was regionally agoraphobic, as he said, except for twice in his life, never le- as he got older, never left Midtown Manhattan. Went to his daughter's graduation at Brown and took a gray line circle tour of New York City on a boat. But in 69, Garth did a local ad for John Lindsay. And Lindsay was down in the polls. Lindsay looked in the camera, said this was the second toughest job in America. And he won that re-election campaign when he should not have. I guessed wrong on the weather before the city's biggest snowfall last winter. And that was a mistake. But I put 6,000 more cops on the streets, and that was no mistake. The school strike went on too long, and we all made some mistakes. But I brought 225,000 new jobs to this town, and that was no mistake. And I fought for three years to put a fourth police platoon on the streets, and that was no mistake. And I reduced the deadliest gas in the air by 50%. And I forced the landlords to roll back unfair rents. And we did not have a Detroit, a Watts, or a Newark in this city. And those were no mistakes. The things that go wrong are what make this the second toughest job in America. But the things that go right are what make me want it. I think that was one of the templates that other people used. Then Bob Square and David Surrey did it. Bob Goodman on the Republican side. I think it started to proliferate in Senate campaigns in the 70s. You saw some of it in the Senate campaigns in the 70s. But if you looked at campaign finance reports from the 60s and 70s, it wasn't like today, where today a majority of the money goes to communications. I mean, TV, of course, 10 years ago, there was no digital line campaign finance report. Now, and there's a lot of money spent on digital, but you know, 10 years ago, the largest plurality, if not majority of a campaign budget were TV and radio ads. 40 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was a very small amount of money that was spent on radio and TV ads. And in the 70s, Doug Bailey and, and John Deardorff, who did some of the greatest Republican campaigns in the 70s, they were Nelson Rockefeller's guys, won a whole lot of upset Senate races against Democrats in, I guess, the 80s cycle. George McGovern, Birch by and a whole bunch of Senate campaign Democrats were ahead or thought they were ahead. And Bailey and Deardorff did TV and did negative TV that Democrats didn't respond to. And all those guys lost. Frank Church. All these four or five of these gigantic, I mean, giant senators, when the, when the Senate had giants. John Culver. Yes, yes. Culver, exactly. And Bailey and Deardorff did, I think, almost all those races. Maybe Bob Goodman did one or two on the Republican side. But that's when the world started to see that you had to spend money on television, that this medium was where the majority of money had to be spent. I'll tell you something interesting. Television stations in the 70s treated political campaigns like they would McDonald's. If you buy TV for McDonald's, you call up a local TV stations in the 215 media markets in the country. You call, you know, you call the ABC affiliate in Chicago. You say, I want to buy a million dollars worth of McDonald's ads next month. And they don't ask you for the money up front because it's McDonald's. 
they assume McDonald's is going to have the money and they run the ads. 30 days after the ads run, you get a bill from the local TV station and they say, please send us the million bucks. Well, that's the way TV stations treated political campaigns for a number of cycles in the 70s. What happened was at the end of the campaign, the campaigns would book time on the TV stations, not have the money to cover the ads. They'd get a bill 30 days later and they'd say to the TV stations, well, we don't have any money. We lost or we won. We don't have any money. We've disbanded the campaign organization. That's it. Good luck suing us. In the late 70s, or around 80, the TV stations started making political campaigns, put the money up front, which is differently than they handle the commercial clients. First with certified checks and then with wire transfers, which is the way you do it now, because they didn't trust the way political campaigns were necessarily going to operate. Maybe there's this ad in 1948 for Truman, and certainly by the 50s, television is playing a role in presidential campaigns. What is your sense why there is this 10 or 20 year lag between television joining the fray in big Senate and governor's races? That's a good question. You probably would have to ask a political scientist that. I think it's because the parties certainly controlled primaries back then. I mean, I don't care what state you were in. The Democratic organizations and the Republican organizations in states, depending on, or cities or counties, they controlled the world and they were much stronger than they are now. The Democratic organization in Philadelphia decided that you were the endorsed candidate for one of the congressional districts. You didn't lose that primary. Did people run against organization candidates? Yes. I assume they won sometime, but the parties were so strong that you had to go through the party apparatus. You didn't do it on TV. You didn't do it on radio. You went through the party apparatus to win a primary. General elections were different. General elections were won by people handing out literature and having big rallies. They just didn't understand that this was a way to communicate with people. Of course, there is the famous race in California against the socialist, maybe it was dead, when he ran for governor of California and the movie industry got together and did promos before movies against his candidacy for governor. But no one figured it out. I don't know why. And Garth did it. Garth went to Washington and Jefferson College in Washington, PA. And his roommate was a guy named Jack McGregor. And Jack McGregor's brother ran for state senate in Allegheny County. And Garth, who was after he graduated college, worked on a public TV in New York. This is, you know, David Garth, who did all famously all the mayoral campaigns in New York, Ed Koch, Lindsay, Abe Beam, tons of races all over the country. Hugh Carey's governor's race in New York doing the famous slogan, before they tell you what they want to do, make them show you what they've done. He just put TV ads on in local Pittsburgh TV and McGregor won. Thought, okay, this is a way to go. Really interesting that many of the early guys who did this business didn't come out of political campaigns like I did. They came out of television. David Sawyer, Bob Squire, Garth, Bob Goodman were TV guys and got into the political business. Now, overwhelmingly, the people who do television and radio are political animals who've worked in campaigns and who get into the TV business.
think in an episode I had with Charlie Cook, he might have talked about the tradition in media that started in a more documentarian style of political advertising that over the years gravitated to something a bit more like how ad makers sell tennis shoes or chicken nuggets. Was that an accurate way to think about some of those early ads compared to what we've seen evolve since? There was a guy at Oklahoma State. This guy used to collect TV ads from everybody. He used to write all the political consultants and say, can you send me all your TV ads? Probably started doing it in the 70s. His name was Julian Cantor. Cantor collected something like 30,000 TV ads. He had this gigantic collection. I was lucky enough for years to have lectured at Oxford. The first time I spent a year at Oxford was 1989. I called him up and said to him one day, can I look through your library? And he sent me 50 pages. He mailed me 50 pages of all the spots he had. I went through and picked out about 500 ads, paid him to duplicate them, and he sent them to me. Those ads that were made in the 70s might even be better than the ads are made today. The ad of Al Gore's father and Al Gore, you know, riding the horse with this great voiceover. If I show them to you, Zach, I mean, this stuff all looks the same today. That's not to say that there aren't great ads being made. I think Saul Shore makes good ads. I think there are lots of guys around or women who make terrific ads today. But by and large, those ads were really interesting. And I remember, and I had used to have 100 kids come to my class at Oxford, be mesmerized by watching these ads from the late 60s and 70s. I don't know if there's anything original today. I think everything is derivatives. I've watched ads for Eisenhower in 52 and the Kennedy stuff in 60. Some of the Kennedy stuff in 60, you could run today. His nephew could have run, you know, when he lost that primary to market, could have run half those ads today and just put his own face in there. And I think he would have won that primary. I watch spots for a living. How many original spots do you see in a year? You don't see a whole lot. Back then, the stuff was new and it was original and some of it was really great. And you mentioned the John Lindsay ad is one of your 10 that you highlight. Is there another one or two that you think is important? Well, of course, I always end with a Lyndon Donson Jay-Z ad, which really was a metaphor. It, re- it ran once. children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. There was an amazing ad that Buddy Romer did talking to the camera when he ran for governor of Louisiana, which I thought was the best stand-up I'd ever seen. The camera was really close on him. He came from nowhere. One solely because of this stand-up that he did where if you saw it in five seconds, you got sucked into the TV and the guy went from zero to a hundred. I think that was a Jim Duffy ad who I've talked to on this podcast before who tells the story about that ad and focus grouping it. And I think the tagline was something like, you know, I love Louisiana. I love Louisiana enough to make some people mad. Exactly. I'd encourage people to go find that in the archives. Some insiders say I'm not a good politician because I say things that make some people angry. They're right. I do. Made some people in Washington angry when I refused to take a congressional pay raise passed by the politicians for the politicians. I thought the country needed to tighten its belt. 
I made the bureaucrats and deadheads in Baton Rouge angry when I said I'd reduce the number of state cars and scrub the budget. I made the polluters angry when I said those who pollute the air and water should pay to clean it up. Clean it up or get out, I said. I made the education bureaucrats angry when I said I'd brick up the top three floors of the Department of Education, cut the consultants, and pay the teachers. I notice my opponents don't make many people angry. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Politics as usual. I don't like Louisiana politics. I love Louisiana. I love Louisiana enough to make some people angry. Why was media consulting the right fit for you? I just thought it would be the most fun. I had been field directors in campaigns, but I just thought TV was the most interesting. It would be the most fun. I also wanted to do more than one campaign at a time. So that's really why I did it more than anything else, just because I thought it would be fun. What's an early client or a race or two, once you hung up your own shingle, where you felt like you were coming into your own as a media consultant? Probably Wilson Good beating Frank Rizzo for mayor in 1983. I mean, Frank Rizzo was this iconic, divisive figure who had been the police commissioner of Philadelphia in the 60s and the mayor of Philadelphia in the 70s. In my opinion, a horrible human being and a horrible mayor. Rizzo had been mayor from 71 to 79. He stayed out of term. And then he ran in the Democratic primary against the former managing director of the city, Wilson Good, in 1983. Good was African-American. And we did Good's campaign. And we beat Rizzo. Did it with Pat Cadell, the pollster. And Cadell liked us. And this is before Washington completely controlled everything that happens in campaigns, at least at the federal level. Cadell started recommending us to people. So we got a lot of campaigns off of that race in 1983. First Black mayor of Philadelphia, Wilson Good. Talk a little bit about that race and how Good made history. Well, you know, I'll tell you what was really interesting about the race that Cadell caught. He realized early on with somebody like Rizzo on the ballot, and also an African-American on ballot because it was a primary, that when he would have his calling house call voters, if a white person was calling an African-American respondent or a black caller was calling a white respondent, they were getting neutral answers undecided. With Good and Rizzo, you had to have African-American callers call African-American respondents and white callers call into the white wards. Tuesday or Wednesday before the election, Cadell came to my office with a gigantic pile of polls. In the old days, you filled out the polls individually. Then you put them on cards and collated. He brought a gigantic pile of polls and he put them down on the desk. And he said, see all these? These are white respondents in the river wards and the ethnic white wards of Philadelphia who say they like Frank Rizzo. They thought he was a good mayor. They dislike Wilson Good, but they say they're undecided in the race. We're not getting any of these people. Even though our last poll had us up by 18 or 19 or 20, we ended up winning by about 10 or 12 simply because Cadell was right. And these people were not telling the truth. This happened in Doug Wilder's race for governor of Virginia in California. The results ended up being much closer than the polls. We saw it first in the Rizzo Good race in 83. You've set the stage, but strategically, how did the Good campaign make it happen? I assume you needed to build a coalition of both Black voters and white voters. How did that come together for the good campaign to make history and elect the first Black mayor in the history of Philadelphia? Rizzo was such a polarizing figure, Zach. It wasn't hard for the establishment, the sort of old waspy establishment that ran Philadelphia back then, to come together to try to beat Rizzo. 
in terms of raising money for good, in terms of getting tons of well-respected non-political people to support him, the clergy, business people, they came out and supported good very loudly. They really screamed about Rizzo and turning back the clock to the way he was in the 60s when he was police commissioner and how polarizing he was when he was mayor in the 70s. I'll tell you what was amazingly interesting. The churches passed the hat on Sundays. Instead of having it go to the churches, they would bring the money into the campaign. Sunday night and Monday morning, Zach, it was just beyond anything you've ever seen. You know, they'd come in and they would just pour these donations onto a gigantic table. And there'd be thousands of dollars and pennies and nickels and dimes and dollars from the African-American churches every Sunday in the two months before the campaign. There was just a sense of Rizzo was the past and good was the future. A page had turned, a chapter turned in the city, and now we're looking forward. And that's really what happened. It was one of those moments in this Philadelphia's modern city history. You saw something real happen. Page of history had turned. And well, let me ask you about some more specific clients you worked with. Wilson Good was certainly one of the ones I wanted to ask you about. How about, this is on our list, but I'll give you one, which is interesting. It's a race we lost. We did D. Huddleston's race against Mitch McConnell in 84 the next year. Mitch McConnell, he was essentially the county executive of Jefferson County, the city of Louisville. And we did D. Huddleston, he was the incumbent senator, very popular. With 20 days to go, we had about a 20-point lead. The Louisville Courier-Journal did a poll. They had us up by like 21 points. You know, we were killing McConnell doing negative, beating the living heck out of him. And we had his favorable, unfavorable, even, and Huddleston's numbers were terrific. When the poll came back a little less than three weeks to go, somebody on the Huddleston campaign said, well, we've won the race. We don't have to do any more negative. Let's take the negative off the air. We'll just run positive. You know, we protested. The race started getting closer. It's amazing 38 years ago, but D. Huddleston lost by 5,184 votes out of 1,284,811. They are indelibly etched in my brain because in the last three weeks of the campaign, we were not allowed to do negative TV. Roger Ailes was doing the McConnell campaign and they did this brilliant ad, had these hound dogs looking for for Huddleston in the Capitol. They couldn't find him because he missed a few votes. My job was to find D. Huddleston and get him back to work. Huddleston was missing big votes on Social Security, the budget, defense, even agriculture. Huddleston was skipping votes but making an extra $50,000 giving speeches. I just missed him when D. skipped votes for his $1,000 Los Angeles speech. Let's go, boys. We got him now. I was close at D.'s $2,000 speech in Puerto Rico. Thank you very much. We can't find D. Maybe we ought to let him make speeches and switch to Mitch for senator. We weren't allowed to respond to it. McConnell ended up winning. I tend to remember the losses much more than I remember the wins. I hang around some of the most famous golfers of all time, whether it's Jack Nicholas, Watson, or Trevino, and they don't sit around and talk about their wins. They talk about the tournaments that got away because I've caddied 550 PGA Tour events over the last 40 some years. All these guys never talk about tournaments they've won. It's all, God, I bogeyed the last hole to lose this thing. It's about tournaments they've lost. You know, what I think about are the races that got away and that we should have won, not the races that we've won. A lot of the Senate races in 1984 maybe didn't matter long-term which way they fell, but hard not to argue that McConnell winning that race in 84, the Mitch McConnell origin story, did not have wide-ranging implications. A couple other races I wanted to ask you about, 
Uh, one is a, a presidential race that you were involved with. You were on board with Al Gore's 88 presidential race, the nomination ultimately won by Michael Dukakis. Of course, Gore becomes vice president four years later. But but talk to me about your experiences on the Gore 88 presidential race. I really liked him. I still think he should be president. I think he would be as good as anybody out there. I come from the Roger Ailes school of doing campaigns, which is somebody has to be in charge and they're, quote, dictatorships, not democracies. You know, that was a democracy with about 30 people trying to make decisions in the campaign. So I don't think it was the the greatest campaign. I thought by far Al was the absolute best candidate in that race. What I remember a lot is debate prep with guys like Richard Holbrook flying around the country with Gore. Presidential campaigns are a totally different animal than statewide. And today, of course, they are billion dollar businesses. I mean, you know, when you think about the marketing of a presidential campaign today, with the exception of Pepsi, Coke, Apple, McDonald, presidential campaigns in the year they run spend more money marketing themselves than all but a handful of commercial campaigns do worldwide. It was a small campaign. I mean, no one gave Gore a chance, but it certainly set him up to be the vice president in 92. And then, you know, his campaign in 2000, where he he did get more popular votes than Bush because of the horse's ass Ralph Nader's turned out to be. You know, he wins Florida and he's the president of the United States. And I think he would have been a terrific president. I, and I still believe he'd be a terrific president because, as you know, the Democratic Party has turned into a gerontocracy. We're not the Mormon church. I mean, the Democratic Party has to move on. But if Gore wasn't the age he is, I'd be knocking on doors in Philadelphia in a primary for his presidential campaign. Is it your sense that 88 campaign, the Gore campaign, could have done things differently and maybe actually did have a path to the nomination or was the field such that it just really was never no, it didn't, in the cards? No, it, yeah, it didn't, Zach. It, I think it was sort of, it wasn't preordained that Dukakis would be the nominee, but I think he had a tough path to the nomination. I mean, I just need a lot more money to win all the Super Tuesday states. I mean, remember Super Tuesday was really important then. I just think it was really, really hard for him to sort of come out of nowhere and do it when, not that Gore wasn't liberal enough, but Dukakis was the sort of darling of that wing of the party, which dominated enough primaries. That's one of the entire campaigns I show when I lecture. I show the Dukakis-Bush race in 88 when with 13 weeks to go, Dukakis had a double-digit lead on Bush and allowed Bush to define himself, define Dukakis, and define the stakes of the election when there weren't really any stakes of the election. It wasn't, it's the economy stupid year, or the contract with America year, or the Watergate year, or a recession year, or anything. And Dukakis and the people around him, they completely blew that campaign. That was a presidential campaign that could have been won by a Democrat, and boy, they blew it. Another name I couldn't help notice on your client list is Jerry Springer, who people now know for his TV talk show, which spawned a whole genre of, of daytime TV. Well, but he, maybe, yeah, he was a mayor of Cincinnati. Jerry Springer, as I tell people, did the single most courageous thing I've ever seen a politician do. Famously, the Columbus Dispatch, when newspapers mattered, and I still read five papers a day, the Columbus Dispatch in statewide primaries would run a two-page chart where they'd ask the candidates for governor, senator questions. And Jim Rhodes wasn't running for re-election as governor. And there was a gigantic Democratic and Republican primaries on both sides. Springer was a New Yorker, went to Yale Law School, came to work in a big white shoe firm in, in Cincinnati, ran for Congress as a sacrificial lamb in a Republican district in Hamilton County, got killed as an anti-war candidate, got elected to city council, 
then got elected mayor. So when he runs for governor, the Columbus Dispatch questionnaire was things like, what's your favorite baseball team? What's your favorite football team? Springer running in the Democratic primary for governor of Ohio. Favorite baseball team, New York Yankees. Favorite football team, New York Giants. Still to this day, the single most courageous thing I've ever seen anybody do. It was amazing. Doc Schweitzer in our office with our producer, Mark Moskowitz, and a guy named Mike Ford, who we met working on the Kennedy campaign in 1980. Ford was one of the big field operatives with Paul Tully in the 80 Ted Kennedy for president race and was really good friend of Jerry's. They came to us. Springer could really talk to the camera. We did one big bio ad and then Springer just talked to the camera. He did about 10 stand-ups and they were great. Unfortunately, in the middle of the campaign, what happened was that they discovered and made public the fact that when he was mayor, he had gone into a house of ill repute and paid for it with a check. That became public, so he didn't win the primary. But one of the TV affiliates after the campaign came to Springer and said, we love the way you talk to the camera. Do you want to do editorial pieces for us? You know, for two or three minutes where the general manager of the station would talk to the audience. No one ever does, or very few stations ever do that now. And Springer did it. And it turned from that to being the six o'clock anchor, to being the six and 11 o'clock anchor, to anchoring a 10 o'clock show that was shown on six or seven or eight stations in the Midwest to being where he is today. But it all came from that primary for governor where he ended up, I think, getting 15% of the vote. But the GM of the station, one of the stations in Cincinnati, thinking this guy's amazing on camera. And that's the way his, his TV career started. And I can't talk with you without talking about the career of Ed Rendell, former mayor of Philadelphia, two-term governor. I'm interested in hearing about your time around Ed Rendell, including that 2002 race for governor, but also just your take on him in general, as he seems like a, a throwback to some extent of when politicians actually had big, interesting personalities. Yes. The thing about Ed is he loves people. He was an assistant DA and he took a flyer and, you know, and ran against the incumbent district attorney of Philadelphia. He wasn't working for him then. He was doing private practice, but he took a flyer and ran against uh, in the Democratic primary, the organization candidate for district attorney, and he beat him in an upset. No one thought he had a chance. And he was DA for eight years. During that time, he ran in a Democratic primary for both mayor and governor, mayor of Philadelphia and governor, and lost. And everybody thought he was dead. And he came back in 91, and we did his campaign for mayor in 91, where he beat Frank Rizzo. I mean, Frank Rizzo died in the summer, but he was going to beat Frank Rizzo, who was coming back yet again, and won a tough primary and uh, became a mayor and was a very popular mayor of Philadelphia. Really turned the city around and did a renaissance in the city. Um, the city was really back on its heels because of a hundred different things about you know how tough it is to manage cities. And he was going to run for governor, and but he did something where he got really, no, no Philadelphia mayor ever gets involved in the mayor's organization in, in Pennsylvania. And he did. And he traveled to all these little cities around the state, and made lots of friends, including Republicans. In 2002, you know, he ran against Bob Casey, the current senator, who was then state treasurer, one of the governor, who was governor. extraordinarily popular. It's It's been the most popular name for the last 50 years in Pennsylvania politics. 
and he ran against Casey. With about 17 weeks ago, we were 18 points down. And we ran a great campaign, and Rendell beat him in the primary by about 10 or 12 points, and then won the general election, and was a very good governor, and became chairman of the Democratic Party in the country. He wasn't old-fashioned in the sense that he was a troglodyte. He was old-fashioned in the sense that, you know, he bothered learning all the names of all the legislators, the 203 House members and 50 state senators in Pennsylvania. He got to know them all which no governor ever does. Even in a time when there's hyper-partisanship, he was able to get a lot through the legislature, always, almost always controlled by the Republicans. Certainly, they controlled the state Senate. He got stuff through because he had relationships with these people. Ed understood something that I've tried to tell candidates. Politics often is about personal relationships. And Ed understood that. And, and he understood it when he was mayor to get along with the 17 people on city council. And he understood it as, as governor. Rendell was down with about 15 weeks to go. We were down 17 points to young Bob Casey, whose yeah. father, of course, was governor. And Casey back then uh, had been elected both auditor general and state treasurer, decided to run for governor literally within three weeks. We put a 60-second ad on in a couple of 30s. The crux of the ads were that Rendell had experience. We made the holding of the case. You know, I always say, define yourself, define your opponent, define the stakes of the election. We were trying to make in that campaign the stakes of the election that Rendell had experienced because there had not been a mayor elected Philadelphia governor in, since the beginning of the 20th century. And there hadn't been a Democratic mayor elected governor of Pennsylvania from Philadelphia since like 1905. So we made the campaign a referendum on experience. And literally within three weeks, when we got our first poll back after we'd been on TV for three weeks, and we spent money outside of Philly, we didn't have to spend money in the Philly media market because Rendell was so popular. We went from 18, 17 or 18 down to about 10 up. We were on in the middle of the winter. Hot levels were up. People had nothing to do but watch TV. And the Casey campaign never caught up. And all they did in the last three months of the campaign was attack. And every time they, they attacked within a day or two, we responded to the attack, put a fist in their face and ended up winning by 12 points. Pretty remarkable given the Casey name is the most popular Democratic name in Pennsylvania by far. Bob has now been elected to the United States Senate. He beat Santorum, has won re-election a couple of times. It was amazing that it happened in 21 days. Rendell called me. He was campaigning at a plant gate early one morning in Altoona, shaking hands. And he called me after the plant shift and he said, it's working. I said, why? He said, well, he knew that we were making the campaign a referendum on experience. And he said, some guy shook Rendell's head and said, Rendell said, why are you voting for me? He said, because you're the old guy. The seed was planted. And every negative spot we did against Casey was about the fact that he had no experience to be governor. There was an editorial in the Harrisburg newspaper with a few weeks ago in the campaign saying, quote, if his name wasn't Casey, he wouldn't even be running. And we used that the tagline on a bunch of spots at the end of the campaign, which was fairly devastating. There aren't very many races where you have two really well-known candidates, and yet you still see a 30-point swing from plus 17 down to plus 12, a 30-point swing over the course of just a matter of a few weeks. You know, there were two other campaigns where I saw that. One was the Wolf campaign for governor. Tom Wolf was unknown, running against the state treasurer and a congresswoman from Philadelphia in the suburbs named Allison Schwartz. 
And they were both in their 20s. And Wolf was in low single digits. No one knew him. You know, he's just a business guy from York County. And Sal Shore did these, and Andy Johnson, his partner, did these amazing ads for three or four weeks. And all of a sudden, Wolf was at 25 or 30, and they were at 15, and he ended up getting in a three-way in the 50s. And he just blew those guys out. But the most remarkable thing was, in 1992, we did this woman, Lynn Yackel. Lynn Yackel's father was a congressman from the Tidewater, and she was involved in women's issues in Philadelphia, completely unknown. She decided to run for the United States Senate against Arlen Specter. After Specter famously grilled the needed hill in the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings. And Specter really went after Anita Hill, not believing much she said. She decided to run. No political support, nothing. She doesn't know anybody. She's not rich. She wasn't putting in millions bucks of her own money. She just was really angry at Specter and the way he treated Anita Hill. She runs in a three-way primary for the United States Senate against Lieutenant Governor, guiding Mark Single, and the District Attorney of Allegheny County, uh, Bob Colville both of whom were very popular. Single was Casey's lieutenant governor and had been acting governor. And Colville was very popular in southwestern Pennsylvania. The Pittsburgh media market is very parochial. When we took polls, the polls were consistent. Single was around 40 and Colville was at 30 and Lynn Yackel was at one, two, three, four. In fact, we used to put straw people in the polls and the straw people were beating Yackel. I mean, she was nobody. And with 17 days to go, we went on TV not with a gigantic amount of money. And we did one spot. You heard Lynn Yackel say, this is all she said, did this make you as angry as it made me? And then we did 15 seconds of Arlen Specter beating the heck out of Anita Hill. And at the end, you heard Lynn Yackel say, quote, where does it say that our senators have to be career politicians like Arlen Specter? And she went from one to 44 in 17 days and beat these two guys with less money. And that was a remarkable thing. October 11th. Did you conclude that Judge Thomas was guilty of sexual harassment? Did this make you as angry as it made me? I'm Lynn Yackel, and it's time we do something about the mess in Washington. I want to put Pennsylvanians back to work, make health care affordable, and keep the government out of personal family decisions. And I want to beat Arlen Specter in November. Because where does it say that our senators have to be career politicians like Arlen Specter? Lynn Yackel for U.S. Senate. You know, I always say there are only two people that I really cared about beating in my career, Specter and Rizzo. We did um, Joe Sestak's primary. Specter became a Democrat finally, ran against Joe Sestak, this congressman in 2010. And we did the same kind of thing. I mean, Specter had a wide lead on Sestak. And one of the kids on the campaign found Arlen Specter saying to one of the TV people, the reason I switch is to get reelected I mean, in his Kansas accent. And we put it on TV. I'm Joe Sestak, the Democrat. I authorize this message. My change in party will enable me to be reelected. For 45 years, Arlen Specter has been a Republican politician. Arlen Specter is the right man for the United States Senate. I can count on this man. See, that's important. He's a firm ally. But now... My change in party will enable me to be re-elected. Arlen Specter switched parties to save one job. His, not yours. Sestak literally within days had a lead on Specter in the last couple of weeks of the campaign. The Rendell Casey campaign and the Wolf campaign and Lynn Yackel against Anita Hill was one of the few times you see something skyrocket. I don't, I don't know if it can happen now, Zach, with all this independent money that's out there. The airwaves are so cluttered. 
Now when his name pops up, Ed Rendell, he is a go-to quote, and he's not afraid to needle fellow Democrats. Does he, you think, relish that role? Does he just can't help but be honest and give his two cents? It's funny that you would ask that, Zach, because in the campaign, we had to make sure to tell him that he wasn't a political operative or a political observer. So that when someone would ask him a process question, that's what I would call process questions, where they would ask him about public polls that are out or something like that, that wasn't his answer. The answer was, well, that doesn't matter. What matters is bringing jobs to Pennsylvania or something like that. You know, we had to beat him up for eight years as mayor and eight years as governor that his job wasn't to be a pundit. His job was to be an office holder or a candidate. But since he's had no governor on him with a small G. He just has always wanted to be a pundit. And so he doesn't care about, I mean, certainly he's not going to get up and call Biden the biggest city in the history of the world or something like that. I mean, he's able to temper himself somewhat, but he's not afraid to talk about people in his own party and say, hey, I don't think, you know, I think these people are screwing up. And, and, and that's why for years he was on CNN or MSNBC or whatever he was on. He was always, you know, he had part of the, the, their shows. As he's gotten older, he's done it less. He's always been into punditry. And in campaigns, we had to warn him away from that. Don't talk about that, no matter what they ask you. And we've talked about some of these specific races, but just in general, what do you think separates a really strong ad maker from the rest of the pack? I think everybody in this business who's real has done good spots and bad spots. You know, Mark Putnam, who I really love and who I think does brilliant stuff, but also is, you know, once in a while has a clunker. I think it's a combination of having some imagination and have a feel for a race beyond just what the poll says. I also think it's still about having a good client. Clients do matter. You and I have had great clients who've not raised a lot of money, or the opponent has tons more money than we do, or I don't think ads matter at all in presidential campaigns anymore. Zero. I think the last ad that mattered in a presidential campaign literally was a swift boat ad against Kerry in 04. I don't think any ad that Obama and Clinton did in 08, even the waking up in the middle of the night ad or anything, I don't think any of those ads have mattered because the free press in a presidential campaign dominates stuff so overwhelmingly, especially with cable news now, that I, that I just think these ads are window dressing compared to what's really going on out in the real world and how people get their information. They certainly do matter in congressional races and in Senate races and gubernatorial races and mayoral races. And you watch a, a ton of movies each year, right? Can you tell yes, me how you develop that I, habit I, and, and how consuming that amount of film has impacted your ad making? None. I do movie shows here for the NPR affiliate here in Philly since the 90s. You know, so one of my distractions is actually going to the movie. I've been in a movie contest with a whole bunch of people forever, probably since the, the mid 80s. When we first started in the movie contest, because we didn't know and trust each other, we would get a diary and have to put the ticket stub in, the, in a diary to attest to the fact that we really went to the movie. Now, you know, we just keep our own diary. But up until two years ago, I averaged about 200 movies a year in theaters. 
in the last two years, I saw 78 movies in 20 and 111 last year in theaters. When I go to the movies, I just go for entertainment. I mean, there's not necessarily anything that I've been able to steal from movies that that I've been able to use and, you know, maybe subliminally. I think it's a whole lot different than writing a 30-second ad, which is used to be 70 words, but now you have to say, I'm so-and-so and I approve this message. Or you really have to say more. You have to say, I'm so-and-so, and I'm just as angry with Washington as you are. That's why I approve this message. So now you're at 50 words in a federal race. Not a whole lot you can do in 50 words. Another thing that makes you one of the most interesting people in politics is your overlap in the world of professional golf. And can you talk a bit about how you found your way into the world of the PGA Tour and uh, some of the highlights there? Every week is a highlight. Many golf courses around the country are closed on Mondays. They give the staff off on Mondays, at least at the private courses. In the local areas, they have little section golf tournaments where the local pros get together and play for small purses on Mondays. And I used to caddy in those. And one of the guys I caddied for, there used to be a tour stop. This was 1972. And I was a kid. There was a tour stop in Philadelphia called the IVB Golf Classic, a major professional tour stop. And I caddied for him there, a guy named Willie Maples. And we were paired with a guy named Jimmy Hardy. And he said to me, what are you doing the week after next? I said, nothing. He said, well, come out to Cleveland and caddy for me at the Cleveland Open. That's how I started caddying on the tour. Purses were small. Caddied for $25 a day and 3% of what the player won. Today, the guy who caddied for Scotty Shuffler, who won the regular tour event yesterday, my friend Teddy Scott, for caddying yesterday, made 10% of the purse. He made $210,000 for the week to caddy. Since Tiger Woods come on tour, the purses are astronomical and guys make real money caddying. When I went out to caddy, I went out because of the love of golf and I, you know, just had a ball. I met about everybody in golf for the last 19 years of caddy for the very famous golfer, Tom Watson. I was lucky enough to caddy for him when he won a ton of tournaments. It doesn't get any better than that. And is there any overlap, any connective tissue to being a, a high-level caddy and also a, a high-level political media consultant, or, or is that too much of a reach? You see people under a lot of stress, different kind of stress, but you see people under stress. I mean, caddying is interesting because it's the only sport where a lay person is on the field with the athlete. You're out there with the golfer for four to five hours. I mean, you know, and the guy's talking to you and asking you advice. When you go to a baseball game, you know, when I go to a Phillies game, sitting in the stands, Mike Schmidt would never come over to me and said, you know, I can't see Nolan Ryan's fastball. But when you're out there, you see what an athlete is going through, how nervous somebody is or is not getting and how they take the pressure. And that's the same thing in a campaign. As you know, you know, you watch candidates and staffs react to things and how they react to the dialogue and the situation in the moment. And campaigns can be often or fairly full of pressure. And so I think that's the similarity. And who's the best political operative or elected official? Who's the best golfer that you've seen who actually in their day job works in politics? The best golfer in politics probably the last 30 or 40 years was Dan Quayle, who played college golf at DePaul. At his best was a three or four handicap. What was interesting was Doc had a client in the house, was from the Pinehurst, North Carolina area, a Democrat, who used to tell Doc that when Quayle was vice president, he played over 100 rounds of golf with Quayle during his four years as vice president. He said, if the country knew how much golf Dan Quayle played as vice president. Golf is one of those things where in the old days, lots of members on both sides of the aisle played with each other. You get to know somebody from the other side of the aisle and you get a real relationship. 
that happens less now. If someone out there is in the early phases of working in politics, maybe has a, a campaign or two under their belt, has an itch, would like to be a media consultant, how should that person be thinking about it? What are, what are some concrete steps that person should be taking? I think if they're working on campaigns, they should try to work on the communication side of a campaign. Be a press secretary, be an issues director. I mean, be somebody like that on a campaign, because I think that that that's the easiest switch into doing some of the creative stuff. And they're also the people that tend to interact with the media consultants. I mean, that's not to say that the media consultant doesn't talk to the fundraiser or the media consultant doesn't talk to the field director or the scheduler, but it's more likely the media consultant's going to talk to the press secretary on a campaign or the communications director on a campaign or the chief researcher on a campaign. That's the easier transition from working on an individual campaign, being on the message side of stuff. Now you can shoot spots on your iPhone. And they look just as good as if you're using 35 millimeter film and you could put it out in a, in a movie theater. Done much more quickly today. You see campaigns doing videos literally every day. These kids, unlike my generation where, you know, no one used computers, you wrote in longhand, you typed on a typewriter. Now you make spots and they go up instantaneously. The technology changes so quickly and the kids are so technologically savvy, there's not a lot of learning curve. There is a learning curve to the film business and making things look good. And there's certainly a learning curve to editing stuff, making it be the right package in a 30-second or a 60-second ad. The kids are pretty savvy about that, much more savvy than my generation was. Although interestingly, in the generation before me, most of the people who did this came from television. They were television people or ad people on the big side before they were political operatives. And we've talked some about the presentations you have about the history of ad making. Does that live anywhere on YouTube? I think once when I did one of Rendell's classes, in the 16 cycle that C-SPAN came up, put on the air, you know, it was about an hour to have things. So you could find it from 16 on C-SPAN. What's interesting is watching this business evolve from when I really started in campaigns in the late 60s and early 70s, both from the TV side, but from the whole campaign business. I mean, in 1980 and 82, a good congressional campaign raised $200,000, maybe three. Now, the hard side of a congressional race is three or four million bucks. And then, you know, you have the soft side spending five million, but, you know, could get congressional campaigns of $10 million. You know, and of course, statewide, you had a whole bunch of $100 million dollar statewide Senate campaigns in 2020. In South Carolina, in Maine, in North Carolina, we're talking about what used to be presidential campaigns were statewide Senecans. The world has really changed. The specialization has changed. I don't think necessarily the campaigns are any smarter, but you know, Citizens United has blown open what people you know can raise in campaigns. I'm not somebody who's wishing for the old days. I mean, you know, I believe in the First Amendment, and even though Citizens United is not necessarily good for American democracy, I think the Supreme Court was right in that free speech clause of the First Amendment. Having done this business, like a lot of people, I am afraid that democracy is changing. We're not attracting the kind of people at all levels of government that we used to, Democrats and Republicans. I'm mature enough and old enough to look at the United States Senate from 1970 and say, man, there were giants there on both parties and they talked to each other. And if you look at the United States Senate today, 
what's this thing come to? I am not a cynical political consultant who just thinks about, oh, getting my person elected, but I do care about the bigger picture and where the country is going, and I'm afraid of what's happening. Well, let's end on a recommendation from you, and I usually try to keep the final recommendations pretty broad, but with your interests, Neil, can you recommend a movie, a film that might be especially relevant to people in politics, people who are interested in politics that might not already be on most people's radars? Oh, boy. Probably still to this day is uh, Frank Capra's 1948 Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, still might be the greatest political movie of all time. Then Robert Redford's 1972, you know, The Candidate. I mean, those two, I think, are the still to this day the greatest standout political movies of all time. Some good ones since, but I think Wag the Dog with Dustin Hoffman. If you want to look at two amazing political movies because of the actors in it, it doesn't get any better than Jimmy Stewart. It doesn't get any better than Robert Redford. And Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and The Candidate. Talking politics, it doesn't get any better than talking to Neil Oxman. Neil, thanks for uh, letting me talk through your career and your insights and your expertise on all of these fronts. This was great. All right, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.